Amen. All right, let's go 2 Kings chapter 14. 2 Kings chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, the little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, man, we would absolutely love for you to take one of those physical ones home. Uh, the reason for that is incredibly simple. We believe that God uses his word, uh, the Bible, the scriptures, whatever word you want a name you want to give it. We believe that he uses his word to, to uh, convict us of sin and draw us to repentance, but mostly to give us himself, that, that he reveals who he is through the scriptures. And so if you don't have a Bible to read on your very own, you're at a disadvantage advantage in knowing him. And so we want to fix that. And so if you don't have a Bible of your own, take that one home. Second Kings chapter 14. So we're walking along now. Uh, we're getting really, really deep into the series that we're calling a story of God. We have been in this series uh, except for a summer break uh, since Easter. All right? And so we're, we're pretty deep into this. And the premise of the series is actually incredibly simple. We believe that the entire Bible is about Jesus. Not, not just as a general idea. Oh yeah, he's the main character and he comes in about you know, two thirds of the way through. No, he is the star of the show. That no, that no matter where you open up in the scriptures, whether you're looking at the story of Adam or the story of Noah or the story of Abraham or the story of Leah, uh, no matter where you pick that up uh, in the Old Testament or the New, Jesus is the star standing above every other minor player. Right? And to flesh that thesis out, to show our work, what we've been doing is taking a walk through the major characters of the Old Testament, looking at their lives and asking the question, how does their story tell us about the much larger and much more beautiful story of God? How does their story get us, point us to a much more beautiful, a much bigger, a much richer story of Jesus? All right? And so we've taken up the habit of breaking it into four smaller questions because that can feel a little daunting. The story of God question can feel big, and so we've broken it up into four smaller questions. How was this person raised up? What made this person a seemingly bad choice? What did God do to redeem them? And how does their story preach the gospel? Each week, uh, we answer those four questions, and, it's, and it's, uh, it's my opinion that if we answer those four questions faithfully, we get ourselves to a, an easy place to answer the much larger story of God question. I will throw you a curveball today. We're going to do it in this order, but our character today has an interesting story, and the lines get blurred a little bit. Who's our character for today? Jonah. All right? Jonah, Jonah's got a long story, at least in the redemption department. All right? And so we're going to blur the lines a little bit between questions three and four, but we'll get you there, okay? Can you follow me with the curveball? Good. All right, Jonah. Who's Jonah? The fish guy. I mean, is that what most people remember, right? The fish guy. Maybe more going on to Jonah's story than that, but let's round out his profile. A difficult calling, a very gracious God, and a sign to remember. Are you ready to jump into it today? So what's question number one? How was Jonah raised up? First of all, as a celebrated prophet. 2 Kings chapter 14, but let me set the stage for you. Um, so we closed things out last week by talking about Elijah, right? And Elijah was a prophet during the reign of King Ahab of Israel. If you weren't here, uh, the kingdom of Israel that was reigned over by Saul, David, and Solomon, the, the golden age of the, the Bible, or the golden age of God's covenant people, right? that kingdom is no more. Right? As soon as Solomon's son, Rehoboam, takes the throne, he does something dumb the first weekend and the kingdom splits in two. The ten tribes of the north go off and, and develop their own kingdom called the northern kingdom or the kingdom of Israel because that's not complicated at all. Right? And the two southern tribes become the southern kingdom or the kingdom of Judah. They each have their own kings, they each have their own capitals, they each have their own armies. Sometimes they get along, sometimes they don't. Right? And so last week we looked at the story of Elijah and we looked at King Ahab, who was the king of Israel. And last week's story played out about half a century, 50 to 60 years, into that divided kingdom. All right? But you may have noticed, those of you who were here last week, we skipped from the middle of 1 Kings to the middle of 2 Kings in a week. So what's happened in between? Well, the answer is a lot. A lot has happened in between. About 100 years or so have passed between last week and this week. They've gone through several kings at this point in the northern kingdom, and while some of the kings have been really bad, some of the kings have just been not good, right? Not good, all right? And none of them have, uh, have, none of them have been like as bad as Ahab was. Remember last week how Ahab was the one who provoked the Lord to anger more than any king before him? 
Like, nobody's touching Ahab. But at the same time, they're not exactly good guys either. All right? And really, the thing that made them the not good guys was the fact that they had the ability to tear down all the idols to the false gods, and they didn't do anything about it. They just let them stay. Okay? And so in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 23, we read this. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. So how many of y'all think that is an incredibly complicated sentence? In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. So, what do we do with that incredibly complicated sentence? Well, we introduced last week the idea that, that these reigns of these kings in each of the, the divided kingdom, the, the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel, are set timeline-wise over against the other king. Right? And so last week we saw that, uh, that Ahab was king over against King Asa. Right? All right, and so we had all this weird thing. And here we see the same thing. All right? So Amaziah is the king of Judah right now. He's in the 15th year of his reign. And the king of Israel... Joash dies, and his son, Jeroboam, ascends to the throne. Everybody on the same page now? Do I need to do like a little test afterwards? No? Okay. Easy enough. But it's complicated by two things that we see in the text. One, we see the name Joash twice, right? Joash, king of Judah. Joash, king of Israel. So who's Joash? They're two different guys. Two different guys. Both Israel and Judah both had a King Joash. Their lives overlapped, but their reigns did not. All right? Joash, the king of Judah, dies. His son Amaziah steps to the throne. And 15 years later, another king named Joash dies. And his son, Jeroboam, ascends to a different throne. Okay, so that's, less, that's not complicated. But it's complicated by another thing. Jeroboam is not a unique name if you know your Bible well. Where did we see Jeroboam in the series so far? When we talked about Solomon and his son taking over in the divided kingdom, and who's the first king of the divided kingdom? The king of the north is Jeroboam. Jeroboam the first, which makes this Jeroboam, Jeroboam the second. You feeling better about that test later? Everybody on board now? No? All right, keep reading. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. Verse 24, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the first one, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Verse 25, he restored the border of Israel from Labohamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant who? Dun, 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 the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. Okay, so we learn a couple of things from this text, even the first three verses or so. First of all, Jeroboam II uh, wasn't a bad king per se, right? Like, like, if you try to compare him to Ahab, Jeroboam comes off looking pretty nice, right? But at the same time, he's called an evil king, someone who did evil in the sight of the Lord. But that evil is mostly the fact that Jeroboam II had the ability to tear down all these false altars and to drive out the worship of all these false gods, and he does absolutely nothing about it. All right? And so in God's eyes, he didn't do his job. And so Jeroboam II is seen as, a, as an evil king, like, but he's never going to be like a good king. Like If we try to compare him to the best kings of Judah, Jeroboam doesn't look so great. But if we compare him to the most wicked kings of Israel, well, Jeroboam's not so bad. That's kind of how that works. Jeroboam's not so bad. And so uh, by northern kingdom standards, Jeroboam was a quote-unquote good king. A good king. And because of that, we read that God allows him to have some success. It tells us that God blesses some of his efforts. He, he repairs a border that had been broken down and even expands that border beyond what it was before his kingship. And so in northern kingdom terms, this is kind of a high point moment for them. Things have been going pretty well for a while. They've seen some success. They've seen some flourishing. It's kind of a high point moment. But we're also introduced to our main character for the day, right? We're told 
that Jonah is serving as a prophet in the king's court. It's Jonah the one that's there saying, God's got your back on this. Hey king, you want to go, go, you want to go extend that border? God's saying, yes, go get it. Jonah's the one putting God's stamp on all of the successful things that Jeroboam is doing. How do you think that's going for Jonah? Like, you think Jonah's having a good day? Like, when you're the guy telling the king exactly what he wants to hear, how's your day going? Jonah's got a cushy gig here, right? Jonah's got a cushy gig. But we also haven't looked at the book of the Bible that bears his name yet, right? So, Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. Jonah is not just a celebrated prophet. Jonah is also a called prophet. A called prophet. Jonah chapter 1. Look at verse 1. Give you a second. It's one of the minor prophets. It's after Obadiah. Jonah chapter 1, look at verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, same guy, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their, e- for their evil has come up before me. Okay, so Jonah's got the cushy gig serving in the king's court, but God calls him to a new work, right? So what does he call him to? Well, first he calls him to go to, to Nineveh. Okay, so what's Nineveh? Well, Nineveh was a major city in the burgeoning Assyrian Empire, or I should say the Neo-Assyrian Empire if you want to get technical. All right? Assyria was the empire of the day. It had to be reckoned with. All right? It was massive, it was growing day by day, and they did so through conquest. Uh, Assyria kind of perfected the ancient art, uh, art of siege warfare. They would surround the city walls, and they, they would bombard you and prevent things from coming in and out of the city until you just finally gave up. All right? Assyria got really good at that, and so they ended up taking everything they wanted. And sometimes it took a long time, but they always got what they wanted. For Israel, though, well, they had thought of Assyria as that juggernaut empire directly to their northeast. So why hadn't Assyria done anything with Israel? Well, it wasn't because Israel was something awesome. It wasn't because they were a force to be reckoned with. It was precisely because they weren't. Nobody was paying attention to Israel at the time. See, Assyria had bigger fish to fry. They, they were off of conquering over here, and they were off conquering over there, and they would just get to Israel whenever they got to Israel. And so obscurity is kind of Israel's friend right now, right? Not being noticed, not being paid attention to is exactly what they would hope to just go on forever. It's best not to be noticed, but God doesn't just tell Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh. He also tells them to call out against it. God tells Jonah to go and preach against the evils of Assyria and Nineveh in Assyria, which means obscurity is about to go bye-bye, isn't it? Yeah. So the prophet with the super cushy gig, the prophet with the super cushy job is told to go to a major city of an evil nation. Read that. uh, uh, Gentile, non-Jewish nation and tell them to repent or else. Like anybody else want that job today? I don't. Repent or God's going to destroy you and just see what happens. It's not an easy thing to do. And there's all these different ways that this little scenario can play out, but let's just think through the bookends for a second. Like, like what's the worst case scenario? Well, Jonah goes in, he preaches. He's entirely rejected. He's butchered right then and there on the spot. God destroys Nineveh like he said he would because they didn't repent. And then all of a sudden, Assyria is paying a whole lot of attention to Israel, right? Not exactly a win. Okay, but that's the worst case. What's the best case scenario? Jonah goes in and preaches. Nineveh listens and repents. God spares the city for that moment. Awesome. But then time and inertia do what time and inertia always do. And Assyria still makes it to Israel's doorstep. God doesn't stop them. 
And so either way Jonah plays this, no matter how successful Jonah is, if Jonah does what God tells him to do, Assyria is likely to do what Assyria always does. It's not going to go well for the nation of Israel. So what's a prophet like Jonah to do? Well, that's where we get to ask our second question for the morning, right? What made Jonah a seemingly bad choice? Well, look at verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah runs away, guys. Just straight up runs the wrong direction. But he doesn't just kind of hide out somewhere just hoping God will pass by. No, 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 no. He puts some work into this. Jonah is looking to get as far away from this as possible. And I actually have a little visual aid to show you this morning. We're going to try a new trick this morning with a little tele telestration thing. All right, so this is a map. It's a modern-day map, but it, it'll get you the idea. So where's Israel? Israel's right here, okay? Israel's right there. All right. Jonah is hanging out right here. God tells him to go to Nineveh, which is pretty much modern-day Mosul, all right, in Iraq. All right, so his job is to go up here. Instead, Jonah goes down to Joppa, which is right here on the coast, and gets in a boat to try to head off somewhere else. But we need to zoom out. So there's debate over, whether, over where Tarshish actually is. There's two main schools of thought. One main school of thought is that it's in modern-day Sicily. The other main school of thought is that it's in southern Spain. So Jonah's here. He's supposed to go here. Instead, he gets on a boat going here. And in Jonah's world, this is the known world. Which means, church, Jonah is trying his very best to get as far away from God's calling as he physically can. Jonah's looking to get as far away from this calling as he can. Jonah runs away. But there's a couple of things about his running away that we could spend some time pointing out this morning. For instance, we're told twice in this little verse that he was running away to, quote, escape the presence of the Lord. All right, class, pop quiz. Is it possible to physically escape the presence of the Lord? No. There's literally nowhere Jonah can run, no matter how big the map is, where Jonah can escape the presence of the Lord. Jonah cannot run away from God here. I mean, just picture this little scenario in your head, right? God calls Jonah to do something. Jonah's like, mm-mm, and runs off like a little toddler, right? Heads down to Joppa. God's chasing after him. Jonah jumps in the boat. They start sailing away, and God gets to the edge of the sword just a second too late. Oh, man, he got in a boat. Like, that's ridiculous, right? Is God going to be slowed down by a boat? Is God going to have trouble finding Jonah in Tarshish? You know how I sometimes point to things in the Bible and tell you that sin makes you stupid? Exhibit whatever. Sin makes you stupid. It does. Logic flew right out the window. Now why do I point this out? Because there's going to be a moment sometime soon, maybe even today. Today. Well, you're going to find yourself thinking, you know what, I know what God said, but I don't think he understands. Right? I, I, I know what God, how God sees this, but you know what, I don't think he understands the circumstances that I've got, right? See, the timing's wrong. If, if God only was in my situation right now, he'd think differently. Sin makes you stupid, guys. It's what it does. All the way through the Bible, this is what we see. Don't trust yourself. You're the last one you should trust. But there's a second thing that I want to point out about this text, and it's a verse that I always point to in a very specific situation. So over a, over a decade plus, over a decade plus of pastoral counseling through here and other churches and, and parachurch ministry, um, people have come to me more times than I can count, with a very specific phrase. Right? They'll, they'll say they want to do something, and they'll come and say something to the tune of, God, open the door. I think he wants me to walk through it. Anybody else ever heard that? Said that? More times than I can count. 
doesn't matter if it's a good thing, sinful thing. God opened the door. I think he wants me to walk through it. Jonah didn't have to try very hard to find a ship sailing in the wrong direction. It wasn't any work at all for him. He went looking for a door and he sailed right through it. And I really wish Jim Dempsey was here so he could get that pun. He found the open door he was looking for. See, when you start applying open door theology to, to texts like this, stories like this in the Bible, you find out real fast just how weak open door theology is. Jonah went looking for the door he wanted, and he found it. He found it. And every second of it was an act of disobedience to God. Every bit of it. And so Jonah's a guy who desperately needs to be redeemed, right? He desperately needs to be redeemed. So the question is, how does God redeem him? Well, look at verse 4. But the Lord. Call a time out there. So y'all have heard me say plenty of times, and I'm going to keep saying it until I run out of breath, that those three letters, B-U-T, are the three greatest letters in the Bible. But. Whenever you see a, a but God, but the Lord, but Jesus, pay extra attention in that moment because God's about to do something really, really cool. You're seeing some eternity-shaking theology play out in front of you. Despite our sin, despite our condition, despite our weakness of frame, despite Jonah's absolute failure here, God engages. Despite the mess that Jonah is making here for himself, but the Lord. All right, so what does God do? Whatever it is, it's a good thing for Jonah, right? It's a good thing. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots. It's like throwing dice to see where chance is going to land. All right, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are, and what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord and the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. And then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Verse 12, And he said to them, pick, a, uh, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Verse 13, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Okay, so Jonah, God, God sends a terrible storm to intervene with Jonah's running away. That's what he does. God sends the storm. And we don't tend to think of storms as being a blessing, right? But as an act of God's grace, as a fleshing out of his great love for Jonah, he would not allow Jonah to continue running from him. God steps in but the Lord. You want to try to avoid me? Okay, I'll come to you. We saw last week with Elijah, right? Same thing. This week, Jonah gets a storm. God's in the storm this time. And so he, he sends a storm, and it's a storm that a bunch of salty old sailors are starting to get a little nervous about, right? Think they've seen a storm or two in their life? Instead, they start chucking cargo. We're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die. They start throwing dice. Maybe we can figure out whose fault this is. And because God's big and God does what he wants, the dice points to Jonah. 
God causes the lot to point to Jonah. And Jonah knows exactly what's going on, right? (laughs) Guys, it's my fault. It's my fault. Just throw me over the side and this will all be over. And what's really interesting about this story is that these pagan sailors actually try to save him. It's like, no, 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 we'll just row back to shore. And so God makes the storm worse. <laughs> Says the storm kept getting worse and worse. And they couldn't get back to shore. And so they throw him over the side and the storm immediately dies off. And like you or I or anybody else that we know, if we were in that moment right now, we'd do the exact same thing. They are terrified, Right? The Bible says that they pray and they offer sacrifices to the true God. All they know of the true God is that Jonah said, I follow the Lord, the one who created the the land and the sea. And then the, the, the storm stopped as soon as they chucked him in. But that was enough to convince them. God reveals some of his glory even to some Gentile sailors here, right? Some pagan mariners. But the story keeps going. Look at verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of, his fish, of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Verse 4, and then, then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounds me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord my God, when my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Verse 10, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Chapter 3, verse 1, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So as Jonah is sinking to the bottom of the sea, God appoints what the Bible calls a great fish or a giant fish to rescue him by swallowing him for three days and then spitting him back out on the shore. So, what do we do with the fish? Right? Isn't that a question that a lot of folks have? What do we do with the fish? We believe that God appointed a giant fish to swallow Jonah and hold him for three days and then spit him back on the shore. Literally. We believe that God appointed a giant fish to swallow Jonah, hang on to him for a little three-day camp out, and vomit him back up on the shore after three days. Verbatim. Come on, Woodard. I mean, Really? I mean, really? Yeah. Yeah, and listen, I know that there are many of you who may struggle with that. Definitely people outside these walls that definitely struggle with that. Why do we land there? Maybe I can assuage some of your concerns with an incredibly simple question. And it's a question that I think can be asked of all kinds of things, both inside and outside the Bible. But it's definitely a question that applies today. And it's a really simple question, right? Is God allowed to do what God wants to do? Yes or no? Is God allowed to do what God wants to do? In other words, is there anything at all outside of himself that would be a limit to his plans and a limit to his purposes and a limit to the things that he wants to do? Or does the creator and sustainer of the cosmos actually have complete, full, sovereign authority and control over that cosmos? Is God allowed to do whatever God wants to do? I know that might sound like a glib little question to some, but it's, it's a question that every follower of Jesus, every Christian needs to answer, must answer. Don't, no, we're not dealing with, with should, ought to answer. Because the implications of that answer affect literally everything. Literally everything. Because if the answer is yes, then the fish doesn't matter. God gets to do what he wants. 
God doesn't need it to be physically possible. He's God. He's not bound by what's physically possible. Does that make sense? God doesn't need it to be figured out. And, and we don't have to come up with some cute little way of explaining it. Well, you see, the, the, the stomach lining of certain types of fish would allow for somebody to survive for three days or if it's a certain type of animal that's breathing a certain type of... No. Those answers may exist. But listen, the God who holds your atoms together doesn't need you to figure it out. He's okay. He's okay. If God can do what he wants, he's fine. But listen, the opposite answer is also true. It, it, it affects just as much because if the answer is no, if the answer to the can God do what God wants to do question is no, then that affects everything and it also, right? If there's anything outside of God that says, no, you can't do that, whether that's a major thing like some cosmic truth that he's somehow bound to operate by, or even something as small as your perceived imagination of him. If the answer to that question is no, well, then the fish is the last thing you need to worry about. We might as well throw the rest of the Bible in the trash can because there's nothing left of value here. If God can't do exactly what God wants to do, exactly how he wants to do it, exactly when he wants to do it, then what are we doing here? The fish ain't an issue. Because we're not even talking about a God anymore. Certainly not talking about the God of the Bible. We've reduced him to something less than God. If the answer is no. Is the king of the cosmos beholden to your understanding of reality? Or is God allowed to do whatever God wants to do? Is he required to, to funnel himself down to a point where, where you can fill in all the blanks and get your questions answered? Or is he yet bigger still? If the answer to the can God do what God wants to do question is yes, the fish is nothing to him. God gets to do what he wants. Who cares if we can make sense of it? God gets to do what he wants. But there's also a really frustrating thing about the fish talk. Because if you spend all your time trying to figure out how the fish works, what you'll miss is the sovereign hand of God gently and lovingly pushing Jonah to exactly where Jonah needs to be. If you, if you get caught up with the, can the fish thing really happen? What you miss is that God is orchestrating something massive here to position Jonah and posture Jonah exactly where Jonah needs to be. God uses the fish to humble him. God gives Jonah a nice little three days to sit and think about what he's done. He positions Jonah's heart, spits him back out on dry land, and what's the first thing out of God's mouth after that? I told you to go to Nineveh. Go to Nineveh. He uses the fish to redirect him and to get him back on mission. Now look at verse 3. Jonah chapter 3, verse 3. So Jonah, what does he do? He arose and went to Nineveh. Like What else is he going to do after that, right? You think jumping back in the water is going to help him? <laughs> I'll go to Nineveh. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Verse 6, And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne and removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles let neither man nor beast herd nor flock taste anything let them not feed or drink water but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands who knows God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish 
When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So Nineveh hears the call, Nineveh repents, and that repentance is shown through the physical action of sackcloth and ashes, right? A sign of mourning, a sign of emptying themselves. No one eats anything, no one drinks anything. They even make commands that none of the animals get anything. It's like, no, 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 the entire nation is shutting it down, and we're going to show our level of repentance here. And God looks on that and goes, all right, I won't destroy you. God spares the city. God gets Jonah where he's supposed to go. Jonah is obedient and delivers the message. The message is heard and received and responded to. Everything's a win, right? You know how I told you Jonah's story is complicated and I was going to give you a curveball? Well, Jonah's redemption piece isn't quite over yet, right? The story isn't so clean cut. There's edges that don't fit into the mold. And so keep reading in chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry hey guys i don't think jonah sees it as a win he's angry that god spared him he wants assyria to be undone and there's no scenario where this plays out where jonah is happy unless assyria is completely wiped off the map He is only going to be happy with the total destruction of his enemy. Which raises the, the fun little question this morning. How do you want God to deal with your enemy? Like, is there a scenario that plays out where they repent and God blesses them that you'd be happy with? Just going to leave that one hanging in the ether and move on. Verse 2. And he, Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? See, it's like, I told you so. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth. It's like a little lean-to. Made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come over, up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. Verse 8, and when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Have you ever, you know, just hypothetically wanted to slap somebody? Oh, no, me neither. Obviously not. Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough even to die. Verse 10, and the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? The patience of the Lord here is astounding, right? God continues to engage Jonah in spite of the fact that Jonah is the worst version of teenage angst I've ever seen. Right? God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We're not simply told about God's character by Jonah. We get, it, we get to see it play out, right? God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, even as Jonah wallows in his sin and his self-pity. But we also haven't really answered our redemption question this morning, right? How does God redeem Jonah? The answer is, I don't know. This is the end of the letter. Those of you who have a physical copy of the Bible in front of you, there's no more after this. God asks a question, should I not pity? And we're not given the answer to it. We don't see Jonah's response here. We don't see Jonah go, you know, right, I was wrong the whole time. I'm sorry, God. 
What was I thinking? We don't get an answer. Jonah leaves us with a cliffhanger. But before you begin to think that Jonah was just a jerk here, Jonah's actually walking consistently with the, with the, the prevailing thought of his day. You pull any random Jewish person out of the herd, all right, and you ask them the same question, should I not pity Nineveh? And the answer you're going to get from them is not yes and it's not no. It, it's going to be why? Why would you pity them? Why would you pity that pagan nation? Why would you pity that, that, that domineering empire that's wrecking everything? Why would you pity the evil one? Why would you pity them? See, the idea of God doing anything at all positive or good, uh, other, the idea of God doing anything other than giving the Gentiles exactly what they deserve is a foreign concept to Jonah and his contemporaries. It's not because God hasn't told them repeatedly by this point that this was coming, because he has. We've, we've looked at that throughout the course of this series, right? But because their eyes were closed to it. Remember how I said sin makes you stupid? Even though God repeatedly said, this is coming, this is coming, this is coming, they still missed this point. All throughout the Old Testament, we keep getting these pictures that God is folding the Gentiles into his story. Fortunately, though, Israel couldn't see past the end of their own nose. And so, Joah doesn't really have anything to frame this whole question with. But that doesn't mean that we don't have anything to hang our hat on when it comes to Jonah's redemption. Because we can ask another question. Who wrote the book of Jonah? We don't know, but there's two people who are part of this conversation, right? God and Jonah. And so we're left with two options. Either A, God repeats this story through some divine way to some unknown third party, and they write it down for us. That's a possibility. But the much easier possibility is that Jonah goes home. God eventually grabs a hold of his heart. And then however long later, Jonah tells the story. Well, why wouldn't he include that part in this? Because the truest forms of repentance never, never include trying to save face. Jonah's not interested in showing how he was redeemed. Jonah's telling the story like it played out. He's not trying to make himself look good here. At the end of the day, he was wrong. Should I not pity Nineveh? But we also have one more question to, to answer. Our fourth question for the morning, how does Jonah's story preach the gospel or God's gospel? In two ways, I'll move quick on this. One, God pursues his people. Is that good news or bad news? It's really good news, right? It's good news for me. It's good news for you. Listen, I got more stories than I'd like to admit of running the wrong direction, right? Of seeing things incorrectly, of being obstinate in my sin. Can you relate to that? The fact that God is patient, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love is a great comfort to those of us who go full Jonah sometimes. Am I alone on that? I desperately need God to patiently draw me into himself. To patiently draw me into repentance and into his presence. I need him to overlook all the time my illogical and self-centered excuses and instead lovingly and gently draw me to himself. God pursues his people. There's a second way that Jonah's story preaches God's gospel. And it's that Jesus has an opinion about Jonah too. Join me in Matthew 12. Matthew chapter 12. So we're jumping into the middle of something here. Uh, Jesus is having a little back and forth with a group of people called the, the Pharisees. All right? uh, and so we could spend a lot of time unpacking that, but basically they're a Jewish political, religious party, uh, leaders of their day. They're kind of seen as the religious elite of their day, and they don't like Jesus at all. 
They don't think he's who he claims to be. They don't think he can do what, he's, what he keeps claiming to do. And so they keep challenging him. And in, in the middle of, and this we're going to pick up, is in the middle of Jesus telling them just how wrong they are. All right? That's pretty much what you need to know about that. And in verse 38, I know it's a lot on the screen there. Verse 38, he says this. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, they're talking to Jesus, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights, uh, except for the prophet Jonah, excuse me, uh, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment of this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Okay, so the Pharisees demand a sign, which, uh, or, or a miracle, for Jesus to prove that he's who he says he is. Right? And on the surface, that seems really innocuous. That, that, that makes sense, right? Like if somebody's going to go around claiming to be God, claiming to be able to forgive sin, they need to back that up with something. The only problem is, is that this entire conversation is stemming from, birthed out of, Jesus literally doing exactly that. He just performed a miracle, and they don't want to accept it. All right? He just gave them a sign, and they're like, ah, it's not good enough. Jesus, give us a sign. So what are they doing here? They're patronizing him. Right? They're patronizing him. So they ask Jesus for another sign, and Jesus tells them that he's not going to give them one because... Well, they've already got what he calls the sign of Jonah. And then he clarifies that he's talking specifically about Jonah's little three-day camp out in the fish. Which tells us at least two things. Probably a lot more than that, but at least two things. Number one, Jesus believed that the fish story was true. Like whenever you've got some debate on something and you can be on Team Jesus, just be on Team Jesus. Just a smart move, smart life choice, right? Be on team Jesus. Second thing it points out to us is that God intended Jonah's little three-day camp out to be significant for way more than just Jonah. Way more than just Jonah. Jesus says something greater than Jonah is here. So class, does Jesus have his own little story involving three days in the depths of the grave to use Jonah's own words? Does Jesus have his own version of coming back from the depths of death to complete his, call, uh, his calling and his story? Yeah, which means we have put in the work to do what? Answer our big question for the day, haven't we? One overarching theme to this series, God raised up blank to be a shadow of a more perfect blank to come in Jesus. And so today we learn that God raised up Jonah to be the shadow of a more perfect Jonah to come in Jesus. Rather than being a reluctant prophet running from the problem in the wrong direction, Jesus took on the form of a servant and intentionally came to engage the problem. Jesus is much better than Jonah at being Jonah. Rather than wishing to be put to death because his enemy repented and was spared, Jesus came specifically to die for the purpose that his enemies would repent and have life. Jesus is much better at being Jonah than Jonah. And rather than being vomited out of the ground because Jonah finally came to repentance after three days in the dark, Jesus strutted victoriously out of the grave after three days because he was perfectly vindicated in his righteousness. Jesus is better at being Jonah than Jonah. God raised up Jonah to be a shadow of a far more perfect Jonah to come in Jesus. This is the story of God, guys. So how do we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your response is to press into God today. And you do that by pressing into his word best. Start with the story of Jonah. We read the whole thing. Read it again. It'll take you like 10 minutes. It's that short. Start with the book of Jonah. God has given it to us so that we might know him, chase after him there. But we can take another step into this. Maybe Jonah's story sounds a lot like yours, right? Like Jonah, you can point to some moments where you had a brilliant idea that you would just avoid God and avoid what he called you to. Anybody else? It was an act of love towards you. An act of love towards you that he would prevent you from running any further. Listen, God could have brought... Jonah back from Tarshish, but he didn't let him run that far. God would have no problem at all getting Jonah all the way to Nineveh from Tarshish. It wouldn't have slowed him down for a second, but by God's grace, God said, no, 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 I'm going to stop you before you get there. 
It is good news for your soul that God would say, uh-uh, I won't let you run that far. It's much better, though, if you turn around before he has to send something like a storm or a whale. <laughs> I don't suggest that route. Today's a good day to repent and draw near to God. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have a couple of leaders up front here to talk and pray with you if that would serve you well this morning. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm glad you chose to hang out with us today. Seriously. You can respond to God's word this morning too, and you do that by meeting the one that this story is all about, King Jesus. You repent of your sin, and you come to him and him alone for salvation. Listen, the call that Jonah gave to Nineveh was a temporary one. Repent or the city will perish. But the call Jesus gives to us is eternal. Eternal. Repent and receive life. Make no mistake, the judge of all the earth will rule with perfect justice, and all will receive exactly what they deserve, which for us outside of Jesus is the wrath of a holy God. But the Bible also teaches that those who are found in him, who have placed their hope and their faith and their trust in Jesus alone for salvation, that we are reconciled to him through his death on the cross. So maybe today's a good day for you to repent and walk in the grace that he's offering to you. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. I'll be down front if you want to talk to somebody about that. But let's all respond to God's word this morning. God, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the story of Jonah. Thank you for being a God who lovingly and forcefully, when necessary, intervenes. God, I am just as obstinate. I am just as prideful. I am just as prone to thinking that I've got it figured out better than you do. I have story after story after story of running the wrong direction. As if that could slow you down. But in your grace and in your great love for us, you draw near anyways. God, would you rescue me from my sin? Would you rescue me from my, my notions of having it figured out? Would you rescue me from my obstinance? I don't want my enemies to succeed. I want you to give them what they deserve. Thanks be to God you didn't give me what I deserved. God, would you save? Would you draw to repentance? For, for those in here who don't know you, would you awaken hearts to know you today? Would you give them a picture of, even a small picture of your glory? Would you change us by it, God? Would you raise up people, even in this room, to be forever changed by you? Oh, you're good. In your great name we pray. Amen.